Welcome to Contra International, a podcast exploring the contradictions of disaster capitalism and the movements across the world seeking to change it. I'm Ben Ray. And I'm Alice King-Hungry. So today we have Matt Huber uh, with us, and he is the author of a new book called Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. It was published by Verso in 2022. Matt's a geography professor at the Syracuse University in New York, and he previously wrote a book uh, on a similar theme about called Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom and the Forces of Capital. This, to me, Alice, it was a book I read in about a month. It was a great book, uh, very clear argument, very polemical, um, talking about class and climate change, which is much needed in my view. Um, so I've really, you know, excited to talk to Matt about this topic. Yeah, I think I was probably most relieved to read that. Um, but I ha- I've just had a baby a few months ago. That I'm by having a baby, I'm not the cause of climate breakdown solely, and that that climate guilt. I actually I know a lot of people who have had kids, and this climate guilt and anxiety has hit them like a ton of bricks i i haven't felt that myself personally i don't know if that's a bad thing but i think all of the the other anxieties that people are filling people's lives like you know the cost of living crisis all these other things which are inextricably linked with the climate breakdown of course as we know um the crises um hitting capitalism and but I think as specifically talking from a new parent perspective and to all new parents out there or just parents that there is um there's something that can happen which can make you feel particularly anxious, I guess maybe because you you're carrying on the the human race and then your life is feels almost extended by that. So the idea of then the climate chaos and breakdown is is uh is an anxiety I've heard um quite a few people be affected by but um not me yet I I, I care about it but I haven't felt that particular um thing but also because there's a big neo-Malthusian argument that's rearing its head again um about population control as a response to to um the ecological crisis that 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 we face and uh i i mean i remember years ago i've thought those kind of arguments were were out of vogue but they keep rearing their head again they come around quite cyclically don't they i don't know if it's like a i, I don't know who's who's pushing it if it's the right um the liberal but the liberal left are also flirting with it too um for those in scotland um lucas the mp the green mp she is shared an article which had some Malthusian-esque um, arguments. Yeah, it's, um, I think the, the 8 billion, the fact that the, the world population is just past 8 billion, it's got people talking about the world population again. But the thing is, even if you thought world population was a problem, the place, in terms of climate change, the place the places where population growth is actually happening quickly um you know, Africa, you know, Latin America, places like that. Um, these are not the people emitting much carbon. No. <laughs> so you no. so so if you wanted to cull, you know, large sections of the population, which is where some of the more, you know, radical end of the neo-Malthusians go, 
you wouldn't start with, um, you know, lots of babies being born in Africa because they're not emitting much carbon. You'd have to start with like us in the UK in the US. Not that I believe that culling large sections of the population is a good strategy to... Of any population, but <laughs> we don't... Yeah. But no, of course, but de- definitely yeah. not those in the global south, which is usually the focus of a lot of this kind kind of stuff. Um, so, so shall we get on with it? Sounds good, Matt. Great to have you. Thanks for coming on. Um, what made you want to write this book? Um, and very broadly, what kind of responses have you had? You just said you were um, in Europe for a bit. It'd be interesting to hear your experience. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a long story of how I decided to write the book. Um, a lot of things really converged in the year 2015. Um, I had a child, which I hadn't done before, and it's almost cliche now, but having a child really makes the climate crisis that much more real and thinking about her becoming uh you know, hitting retirement age in 2080 and just thinking about where the planet's going to be in that uh, scenario is quite frightening. And and uh, so, frankly, that sort of ramped up the the urgency for me. And and that led to somewhat of, um, I, I have to admit, sort of anger <laughs> about the the fact that, you know, we've known about this crisis for decades and the climate movement um, in particular has not been able to really effectively build a kind of um, effective power to actually tackle the problem. And so um, the book, to some degree, is a pretty sometimes polemical <laughs> and angry critique of the existing climate movement and strategies for for, for their kind of ineffectiveness. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, not hoping, I, I hope it doesn't, you know, I I don't mean to sort of dismiss the existing climate movement, because I think that's going to be a core part of whatever movement could actually win or build power. But um, uh, it's certainly not enough is the point I'm trying to make. And we need to think a little differently. Um, uh, You know, there's a a, a lot of other things I could go on about this. Like in 2015, I was teaching Capital Volume One by Karl Marx. And and that book in particular has this real shift where it... um, goes from a focus on exchange and markets and commodities. And then it says to really understand capitalism, we have to go to what he calls the hidden abode of production. And we have to understand how uh, when you go into factories, you see just this brutal exploitation of workers. And that's the source of profit. And that's the source of how capitalism works. And at the same time, I was hearing a lot of discourse that we could solve the climate problem in purely the realm of exchange, (laughs) like through markets and through prices and through carbon pricing and carbon taxes and to me this shift to the to production really i think is really important politically to understand that we actually have to you know revolutionize how we produce energy but also how energy flows into all forms of other material production and so that shift really was a big light bulb moment for me to think much more politically about you know, a class approach that really takes production seriously. And of course, the other stuff I'm engaging with is how climate change is always talked about as just something that has to do with consumption, something that is really just linked to our lifestyle practices. And and this world of production that's really has the bulk of most emissions and, and even provisions all this consumption we're so morally uh, worried about 
that that's just sort of erased by this this discourse of of, of carbon footprints and lifestyle uh, environmentalism. Um, and um, the last thing is that uh, there was a guy from Vermont, an older older fellow named Bernie Sanders, that launched his first presidential campaign, and uh, that for me um, really put socialism on the map in a way it hadn't been in my life. Um, I'd grown up come of age in a, in a sort of, uh, you all know from Margaret Thatcher, sort of this, there is no alternative Tina kind of era where neoliberalism and, and the right, and particularly the rich and capitalists were sort of ascendant and powerful. And, and, and there wasn't really a, a sense amongst the left that we actually had a real answer for a different type of society. Um, and so I had been a Marxist for in geography for many years. And that meant, you know, we read David Harvey, we read Our Capital, and we developed like a very sophistic sophisticated anti-capitalism, but we didn't actually talk much about socialism or about building an actual uh alternative society. And so, you know, when Bernie starts running, he calls himself a socialist, and then you get this explosion of socialist politics and the United States and the UK and all over the world, it, it kind of made me think, okay, what would a socialist politics be for climate change? And how can we think through this crisis through a sort of traditional Marxist and socialist lens? I think one of the, the things about this book that's most sort of interesting, I presume is most sort of controversial and sparking debate is the, the middle section about, you know, the climate movement, the professional middle class. Um, and it's, Probably the first time I've read a kind of Marxist materialist analysis of of the climate movement, and you argue that both the radical elements of the climate movement and the sort of mainstream are kind of by and for the professional middle class, you know, in terms of professional middle class is based on educational credentials, um, it's based on, you know, thinking about the science, and, and, and that's the way uh, it talks about kind of climate politics. A lot of people on the left argue that the professional middle class, you know, doesn't really exist, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's just, um, you know, an educated layer of the, the proletariat. Mm -hmm. um, what is the professional middle class for you and, and how did it come about? How did it emerge in sort of the global north and Western societies? So, you know, um, I, I, I should, uh, I, I, I should admit that, like, as I went deeper into this project, I started the project with this idea, OK, we have the capitalist class that controls production that's responsible. And then it made it was very clear to me that there's this professional uh, class that's really at the core of climate advocacy and then trying to develop a working class um climate politics was sort of so the structure was all there but the deep more deeply i started reading on uh how a marxist should conceptualize this sort of middle layer i started to realize you know perhaps it's not as accurate to even classify them as a class in the marxist sense because in the marxist sense if you have to sell your if you're compelled to sell your labor power to survive then you are working class and i think that um very much includes much of what we uh would classify as the professional class um, who, you know, even if they're do if they're relatively comfortable, fact is, if they lose their job within a month, they might just, you know, not have enough money to survive. So there's that, um, there's that problem. So, you know, in the book, I actually 
review some of this literature, uh, different uh, different Marxists who have talked about this and 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 admit perhaps it's not accurate to call them a class. Perhaps they're a stratum or, as you said, a layer of the proletariat, a working class. Um, I'm actually not sure where I fall on that still. Uh, but what I am sure about is that understanding this particular layer uh, is crucial to understand the the sort of you could call it divisions within the working class that are really significant today. And so actually the inspiration for the much of the inspiration for the the book, at least, was an essay by Barbara and John Ehrenreich called Professional Managerial Class. And they they were really trying to understand something that was um, inundating the new left and attempts to kind of create a socialist new left in the 1960s and 1970s. And what they noticed is that these this this new kind of movement was completely inundated with um, highly educated and now recently college educated uh, types of individuals. And, and that's a product of a particular period of capitalism really after World War II. It's quite astonishing. You know, as recently as the 1930s, like the percentage of people that have higher education or college education in, in even, you know, rich capitalist societies is minuscule. And then the post-World War II era, it starts exploding. And then you also have all these dynamics in the economy that are shifting uh, the labor market towards more inequality, but also more advantages for this sort of knowledge economy sector for these people that are able to marshal credentials in the labor market to carve out these advantages. Um, in the U.S., we call it the college degree premium. People just make more income and they can get more secure middle class jobs and lives through uh, these credentials. Right. Um, and so and then uh, as I'm writing the book, you know, it's actually not just climate. You realize that there's something going on politically, not just in the U.S., but all across Europe, which is that you have something that political scientists and economists like Thomas Piketty have identified as educational polarization in the electorates where a lot of what used to be parties of the working class like center left parties have seen their voters shift towards more college educated affluent um, sort of smart voters and now you're seeing a very alarming trend of 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 non-educated working class voters shifting towards the right and you have this sort of educational um, uh, polarization and in the United States it even became clear in 2020 that non-college educated uh, black voters, Latino voters are shifting. We're voting for Donald Trump. There was this insane analysis of um, immigrant communities and urban settings really shifting to Trump in a dramatic way in 2020. So regardless, again, if it's technically a class, I think there's a political dynamic, maybe even an ideological dynamic um, in this layer that is really um, creating a, a real cleavage and a real uh, a real problem if you're a socialist and you want to create a broad based working class movement. And then you sort of realize that everyone in these left spaces, everyone in, in let alone climate, just generally socialist spaces come from the same kind of uh, cultural uh, background, highly educated and 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 really like the base of this new kind of radical movement is what I would call the proletarianizing professional class of, because the economy is so, so terrible and there's so few opportunities for people that a lot of uh, people in the so-called privileged class are, are just are, are, are falling deeper into the working class. They're seeing their, uh, their job security, their wages go down and, 
And they're also seeing like way less autonomy in the workplace for even professionals like teachers and nurses are seeing way more sort of top-down surveillance. And 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 so anyway, um, ironically, I think the sort of base for left radical politics right now is this kind of downwardly mobile professional class. But that still creates a problem that there's a much broader working class that just is sort of checked out from politics. And and if they aren't checked out, they're shifting to the right. So this is a real significant problem uh, for socialists and for working class politics. Yeah, and I think there's another element to your book which kind of identifies, I think, very um, coherently and persuasively um, the, the kind of PMC even if not in the, the traditional class sense, but as a, a quite a political force. But then you also speak to the kind of um, also other area of the left, the radical left, which uh, follow a kind of degrowth um, kind of ideology and position. And we could we could talk to that now because that's probably quite interesting to our listeners of, of Contour and readers of Contour. Because, um, I mean, is your, is your argument that the, political framing of degrowth is wrong, that it can't attract a working class audience? Or is it more that the aim of reducing material output is um, in the global north is wrong in and of itself? Because I think one of the problems that can arise with this debate is that the terms of the argument are never totally clear because mm-hmm. the authors are always saying we're only for reducing certain types of growth and we're for growing other parts of the economy like public services, etc. So yeah. could you Talk a little bit bit more, more to that. Yeah, so my and and by the way, I never answered. I did travel a lot through Europe, and I will say that the the sort of degrowth question was a constant, <laughs> uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, like topic <laughs> of conversation. And 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 certainly, I, I know degrowth is quite um, influential and popular over in Europe. And I would also add, it's extremely influential in um in the US and and just climate left movements but also even in you know democratic socialists of america the the majority of what people that call themselves eco socialists sort of embrace this this degrowth um and the core of my argument you know in line with that middle part 2 of the book is just trying to point out that all the people who embrace this sort of outlook and embrace this degrowth politics are very much embedded in this highly educated professional type context. And when it comes to degrowth, we're not just talking about college education. We're talking about people typically with PhDs or on their way to getting PhDs. If you look at the loudest voices of people calling for degrowth, they're almost all like seriously accredited folks uh, with 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 very high levels. So what I want would like to suggest is that if you're highly educated and you're freaked out about the climate crisis, degrowth makes tremendous sense. It, it it resonates deeply. But if you're part of this larger majority of, of downtrodden working class people who have seen decades of austerity and attacks on their standard of living, this, this sort of idea of leading with less and talking about how we can live better with less uh, uh, consuming uh, less and and in and and this sort of again, I think you're right, like very abstract notion of like we're gonna lessen material throughput in the global north. And again, the, the a lot of workers in the global north have um just seen tremendous economic insecurity over the last uh several decades. 
And so the question is how we went over that broader majority with this this focus on on less. And you know, and and the United States, you know, um, you know, like extreme poverty is like something that the United Nations has classified as like a, a human rights problem. We have people in the United States who are having their water shut off because they can't afford to pay their water bill. We have uh, hookworm has returned to parts of the South of the United States uh, because they don't have proper sewage and so forth. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, one of the most booming businesses in the United States is is blood plasma don donation where, where impoverished people donate their blood um, and can get 30 bucks a pop. And um, so there's incredible amounts of poverty. Uh, about 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. People are struggling. And um, the point I'm trying to make is that to win over that broader majority, we just need to be crystal clear about what you have, what people will have to win and what they have to gain from this types of politics. And, and when we are constantly saying we're going to reduce energy consumption in, in the global north or reduce material throughput, that's not clear to me. Now, I do acknowledge that degrowthers sort of bury the lead where they're like, we want to grow all this great stuff like uh, healthcare and education and, and public goods and public luxury. And, and I am on board with all that. And it's part of a general kind of socialist program of, 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 of sort of expanding um, the public uh, abundance, if you will. Um, but I, I, I think um, that that the sort of focus on um, on the need, the sort of leading with and, and focus on reductions and less uh, in the name of sort of science, which again is another big professional class, uh, science or ecological urgency, I think is not um, not helpful politically. And also just as uh, uh, a Marxist, like I'm much more uh, open-minded about once we seize the means of production, uh, I don't want to say ahead of time that we must reduce material throughput uh, or even energy consumption, because what we want to do is seize production and technology and in ways that orient it toward uh, human and ecological needs. And and I'm I, I don't think we should say ahead of time that wouldn't entail, you know, maybe some increases in material production to do important things like guarantee everyone um, uh, uh, electricity or public transit or these sorts of public goods. So um, for me as a Marxist, the key is to democratize production so that we can actually collectively decide what do we need, how much energy do we require for a good life? And that uh, has to be sort of debated democratically. And we have to try to also integrate in those democratic debates what uh, the ecological limits of those production systems um, can be. And so that all is something we want to do through democratizing production. So the, to get onto the politics, um, so I think, I think the book is quite positive about sort of the Green New Deal politics that's emerged um, in the US in recent years, and you said you mentioned about Bernie Sanders. Um, but it's, it's interesting that you say um, that, you know, the you've kind of looked at Sanders' vote and you say that yeah. you know, he was as unpopular with sort of non college educated white voters as other Democratic candidates, and he was actually more popular than college educated voters, uh, with college educated voters than, than, than other candidates. Uh, 
And I think you conclude that, quote, the working-class politics is perhaps most appealing to professional-class voters who, through education, have learned about the horrors of poverty and inequality. So that's quite interesting, you know, that Mm -hmm. uh, even class politics Mm -hmm. right now seems to be appealing more to to that section. Um, And I think that's, you know, a major problem, not just in the US. I think that's a a problem in, in Europe as well. And it's probably goes some of the way to to explaining why, you know, a class-based politics hasn't cut through, you know, as a kind of, um, you know, alternative to, to sort of degrowth and that sort of thing. What What is it that we're doing wrong? Those of you, like you and I, who advocate for a class-based leftist politics, what is it we're doing wrong whereby we can't seem to, yeah. you know, we've become debased from the working class and we can't seem to kind of build a, a working class audience? Yeah, that's a great question. Um and and I was lucky to, you know, the book was kind of envisioned in kind of the, I would say, the sort of upward swing of socialist politics. Mm-hmm. But I, luckily, I don't write books fast. And I was able to see the crash and burn of not only Bernie, but Corbynism, as you all know. And um, and it allowed me in that chapter five to really more critically assess the potential of this kind of electoral working class socialist politics, which um, to me... Uh, as much as we were excited about it, it seems ultimately like it was what Jay McAlevey calls a shortcut to power, <laughs> trying to just like catapult socialism to the the most powerful office in 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 these countries, as opposed to really doing the hard work of building actual institutions of working class power, like unions and political parties and so forth. And so Bernie, uh, it's very clear that his base. Uh, whether we like it or not, was this sort of downwardly mobile college educated people. It's no mistake that one of his flagship um, uh, uh, policies of of canceling all student debt and free college education is going to appeal to precisely those layers of people working low wage retail jobs with college education drowning in student debt. I mean, this became, I think, the base for Bernie Sanders politics. We should um, give him some credit. Like, I think the campaign did heroic, unbelievable organizing to win over a lot of working class Latino voters in the primary um, and California in particular, like uh, the, the the way in which the campaign was able to sort of just harness these simple work, uh, sort of like, um, you know, simple messages of free health care and, and win over a lot of uh, poor working class Latinos. Um, and. It, it it was kind of uncomfortable, I think, because in 2016, he did do very well amongst particularly like white working class voters and other types of working class voters. But that kind of shifted a bit in 2020. And a lot of people uh, had the uncomfortable realization that um, in 2016, some of that uh, Bernie vote may have been as much an anti-Hillary Clinton vote from these working class people who just because if there's anyone that any working class person would hate it would be the Clintons for passing NAFTA and being the sort of epitome of sort of sellout Democrats that that, that abandon the working class. And so um, uh, so it seems like some of his success in 2016 might have just been anti Hillary Clinton in terms of like what we can do to actually have this class politics work is I think it's it's again, it's hard. You actually have to deliver <laughs> material gains to the working class so that they actually will start to believe that this politics actually can improve their lives. And for all the talk of Medicare for all or Green New Deal or uh, free college education, 
none of those things till still to this day are one <laughs> in the United States. And and so it becomes, you know, when I was canvassing, knocking doors for Bernie Sanders, people were like, yeah, that sounds wonderful. It sounds great, but it's never going to happen. So there's this cynicism. There's this apathy amongst most sort of ordinary working class people that politics can't do anything. You know, they know things are corrupt and things suck, but they don't believe that there's any sort of vehicle for uh, actually politically improving their lives and changing their lives. Um, and I was actually um, just reading the recent issue of Jacobin as it happened. And they have an interview with uh, some of these uh, people like Thomas Piketty and others who have tried to understand the kind of demise of working class parties in the West. And they pointed out to the case of Brazil, where you do have the this working, basically like Lula's party, the PT is a workers party. And it um, actually still retains its working class base to a large degree because Lula during when he was elected in the early aughts actually did do all this redistribution of wealth. Like some of it was because of commodity booms and high oil prices and all the rest of it. But they actually took all that revenue and, and actually redistribute it to poor people and actually implemented programs that improve the lives of working class people. So uh, lo and behold, uh, they have retained and expanded working class support for that particular party. So but again, like that's a party and a part and, and having a, a labor party, if you will, that actually builds infrastructure in people's lives that are that, you know, that have meetings every week or month and and that are integrated in, in ways that where people identify that party or that institution with improvement or with material gains. That's how you that's how class politics wins, because in the United States, there's no um, there's no material benefit for the working class through politics. It's just become, you know, um, the, the political system is so basically uh, corrupted by capital and capital controls everything that um, politics itself has just become a very cultural sort of identity thing where, where it's a culture war over all these all these issues. And um, and and the idea that politics can actually lead to material economic improvements just is off the table. But if that if it weren't, if, if, for instance, by some miracle, someone like Bernie Sanders won and implements something like Medicare for all, and it would just dramatically change the lives of people, then you start to, I think, start to see people being won over into this kind of cl class politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's indicative of the fact that things have moved so far under neoliberalism that even just kind of rel like what Lula did with the PT was kind of modest social democratic yeah. redistribution, you, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and we're looking at that and going like, you know, just give the working class something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, that we're it's kind of depressing in a way, too, that we're looking at that and going like, we need to go back to that, but actually for and uh, much further forward too i mean again extending this kind of line of of discussion in terms of like the practicalities what um what's been your experience of, of applying the themes and arguments of the books to political organizing because i think i read somewhere maybe twitter obviously that you've been in south africa um so it'd be, be interesting i have to hear. not been there but i did an event with you them. Did, yeah so um, it'd be good to hear about that so um to me, because of the somewhat depressing electoral um, results of, of 2020, essentially, um, the only uh, 
the only option, at least in the United States, was sort of moving toward basically trade unions and labor organizing. And on that front, I do see a lot of encouraging signs. We've had a record-breaking upsurge in union elections where just people trying to organize unions. Unions are more popular than ever. And, and, and you know, if we want to win a Green New Deal, we have to realize the original New Deal wasn't just won from above by enlightened Franklin Roosevelt, who sort of showered gifts upon the masses. It was basically a, a huge organized uh, labor upsurge, a strike wave in particular that pushed uh, the political system to actually concede all these um, particularly labor-oriented concessions with regard to unions and collective bargaining and legal rights for workers. Uh, some were excluded, unfortunately. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I think um, in next summer, there's a chance the UPS workers in the United States, represented by the Teamsters Union, might go on strike for a, in their contract fight. And that's about 350,000 workers. And that, that to me, could be a possible extremely um, important sort of fight and struggle to get 350,000 workers involved in a struggle like that. And if they win, they sort of start to learn about their power and things like this. Because the thing is, um, as you said, uh, it's quite depressing. Um, I think uh, Adolf Reed, the, the famous socialist in the United States has called neoliberalism is just capitalism without a worker opposition. <laughs> and it's actually, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable to look at just strike activity and how it, you know, it really went in an upsurge in the 1970s. And then when you get this sort of Reagan Thatcherite attack on the unions, just basic strike activity just falls off a cliff. And, and to me, that is that workers, uh, have ba basically forgotten the power that they have. And, it's very exciting to see in the UK, this sort of strike wave that's happening in the United States, the rail workers, just the mere threat of a strike led all the most powerful people in the country scrambling for weeks to try to prevent it. Um, and so uh, basically that's to me, the, the sort of the path forward. And if you build up the organization that can rebuild the labor movement, you're going to maybe down the line, see electoral results from that organization. But that's generally how it should work. Build working class organization first, and then political results will come later, rather than the sort of reverse engineering of Bernie's elect Bernie Sanders socialist to the presidency. And then he'll be he called himself, he's going to be the organizer in chief and like, organize a mass working class movement from the, the bully pulpit of the Oval Office. Like, that's not how it works. Um, uh, it, but, you know, also, this is inter international. And I think um, I've been really inspired by organizations like Trade Unions for an Energy Democracy, and uh, who have been trying to sort of think about, well, if we need a energy transition to solve climate change, what about the workers and unions that are at the core of that process? And, and um, so they've been trying to coordinate basically unions uh, who fight for not only better wages and working conditions for themselves, but also sort of more public ownership and towards a, a, a green um, energy transition, make sure it's a union transition. And so uh, I was able to do an event with um, a sort of consortium of trade unions and civil society organizations fighting around basically electricity and climate change and public um, ownership. And um, they are struggling with a very sort of different problem, which is they have a very sort of, um, uh, you know, an entirely public system called ESCOM in South Africa that is 
been completely sort of captured by corrupt uh, managers and also corrupt trade unions that are very sort of bureaucratic and top down. So trying to revive a kind of more militant working uh, sort of rank and file uh, fighting union politics to to fight back against that corruption and build an electricity system that actually is good for the mass of people and also for the climate is is something that they're trying to think through um, um, in the very earliest stages. So but um, I think everywhere we look, uh, you know, the this sort of question of labor and unions and and um, and these highly industrial energy systems we have to transform are, are pretty crucial. So the approach that unions are taking in Scotland and, you know, is probably the, the only real approach in Scotland right now to kind of connecting climate action with working class interests is through a just transition framing. Um, so the Scottish government have a just, an official just transition working group. Um, you know, it's an important part. It's 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 sort of rhetorically an important yeah. part of the Scottish government's sort of net zero plans. Um, but the actual reality is there's no there's no mechanism for making yeah. sure this transition is just um, exactly. whatsoever. And you know the the net zero economy as it ex- to the extent that ex- exists in Scotland. Um, is you know has appalling levels of sort of you know collective bargaining. Um, unions aren't really in there, you know, in, in the green economy in Scotland. You argue in the book that the just transition framing isn't a useful one for building actual working class climate politics. What what is what's your argument for that? Well, I actually think it could be useful. Um, but it, I think, in on the one hand, it 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 channels this. Um, justice language, which seems to be, uh, again, sort of um, hegemonic amongst this kind of professional, particularly in non-governmental organizations and academia. It's just like every, all people want to talk about is justice, justice. And particularly justice tends to sort of focus on sort of um, alleviating the the sort of um, marginal, the most marginalized and most harmed from uh, this sort of industrial system, um, which to me is very different than uh, than a working class politics, which is not about them being the most oppressed or the most marginal, but that they're they just have this social power that's more sort of objective from the fact they they um, are the majority of society and they and they do all the work that society requires to function. Um, so. Uh, in the one sense, the just transition kind of has this almost um, paternalistic discourse that, you know, the workers are these victims that we need to kind of help shepherd from the fossil economy to the cleaning, and we'll just sort of help them, um, uh, which goes against this sort of vision that I would like to have where working class people aren't victims, but the agents uh, uh, of transformation themselves. Um, that said, what I try to do in the book is really go back to what... Um, the founder of the term just transition, which was uh, a, a legendary union uh, uh, union leader and environmentalist named Tony Mazaki of the Oil and Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, who, who basically built a mass union movement to win um, Occupational Health and Safety Administration in the United States. And his idea was that um, he called it actually a super fund for workers because we in the United States have this thing called a super fund program by the environmental protection agency. When there's a degraded landscape, 
the the EPA sort of finances the cleanup of that landscape. And Mizaki said, if we treat dirt this well, if we're willing to devote all these resources to dirt, why don't we do that for workers who are left behind as well? Um, and but his inspiration for what he eventually called a just transition was um, something he had benefited from personally, which was the GI Bill, which was this post-World War II program that allowed people to transition from the war economy to the civilian economy. It gave them income support, free education, and real material a real material basis through which to transition, right? And so he thought that there should be this sort of large-scale government uh, commitment to these workers that gives them a, a real solid uh, basis for transition. And, and so that kind of expansion of the welfare state, frankly, is, is, is again, I think, like you said, it's not really discussed much when people have these working groups or when they pay lip service to this idea of a just transition. Uh, and again, to win that scale of a commitment to these workers, you would need way more political power, right? Um, but uh, the, 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 the dark, bleak reality is that the, the term just transition is mostly just a buzzword that circulates again amongst these professional academics and NGOs who, who love the idea of it. But, but when you talk to fossil fuel workers, a lot of them have never heard of anything like they don't even know what it is when you bring it up. Or if they have heard of it, they think it's an insult because they all they see in their communities are coal mines shutting down, coal power plants shutting down, unemployment, mass economic devastation. And so they don't think there's clearly not a just transition for these for these workers. And so I think, again, like kind of like what I said before, to actually win over this kind of kind of class politics, we actually have to deliver and convince these workers that there is actually there could be a future beyond the fossil fuel economy for you if you if you join this movement.